Everyone, welcome to the life of Brian. Dot 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 Mannix. That is my name's Kevin Hillier, and Brian Mannix is the other part of this program, the very important part of this program, the naming right sponsor part of this program. Well, how about me? <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> what about how you? about me? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> how are you, Kev? I'm very well, thanks. <laughs> uh, life of Brian. What's the life of Brian been up to of recent times? It must be nice just to get back on a stage and you know be bouncing up and down again. That's been good, yeah, and um, I had a little bit of burning in my backyard again last night, um, had a few weeds and I sort of discreetly burnt them, but they sort of smouldered all night and I had the window open mm. and now my whole house smells like a bushfire, so <laughs> there I go. So oh, terrific. There's a lesson to be learned. <laughs> terrific. Yeah, yes. beauty. <laughs> what sort of weeds were you burning off? No, we don't probably. No, not. no, it wasn't that kind. Otherwise, I'd be still in bed. Exactly. <laughs> and the house wouldn't be smelling like a bushfire either. No, uh, I'd have half the neighbourhood around here with the munchies. Yes, exactly. Uh, the 7-Eleven have, have had record sales of uh, potato chips and donuts. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, uh, there, it's a, there's a bit of a hippie theme about this program because uh, our guest is Richard Clapton, who is, I guess, uh, by his own admission, Australia's luckiest hippie. He's what? The luckiest hippie? Yeah. Oh, right. He always reminds me of um, my football team because they always get clapped on. Ah! Oh. Yeah, not very good, was it? And they don't often get clapped off, that's for no, sure. No, no, they've been clapped off for years. <laughs> so Richard's done this new album, which is uh, for the first time in his career, an album of covers. Surprising that, but it's um, he's got some good covers, some really good songs there. Oh, just some great songs on this. We're going to play two uh, during the podcast. One is the uh, is the single, which is the old Love and Spoonful song, Summer in the City, and the other yes. one will be the old Buffalo Springfield song, which I must admit is one of my personal all-time favourite songs forever, called For What It's Worth. So mm. we'll play those. For and there's a worth. connection between our two guests because... There is a connection between our two guests. And it's a really funny one in many ways because uh, Mark Opitz, who's our second guest, uh, produced Richard's album, which is the album that contains the only other cover version of a song that Richard's ever recorded. That's right. Interesting Interesting how he came to do that cover too. And, Rich, and Richard will talk about that. <laughs> uh, we've done the interview we got, we should point out, the interview we've done with Mark was over about a three-week period, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, he's... It's it's a big story, Mark, because oh. he's worked with everybody, from NXS to Chisel to Hoodoo Gurus to Richard to everybody. So, yeah. and he's a really interesting guy. So I think it's well worth it because um, you know if you like Australian music, well, this guy gives you the inside mail on the whole on the whole kit and caboodle. He really is the encyclopedia of uh, of so much of the the music of the of the seventies and the eighties. It's quite. Uh, I mean, he started with the Angels and ACDC and. We'll we'll go through all that Albert stuff uh, today, and then uh, in the in the parts that'll happen over the next few weeks and episodes, so uh, you'll you'll hear more about a whole lot of Australian artists and acts and things that happen, and that it's it's fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Yeah. Are you being arrested? I can hear sirens in the background. <laughs> well, it, it, it just sort of. I, I don't think they know I'm home, so I'll be all right. I think. Um, yeah, they're going, so it's okay. <laughs> We, d- we don't need publicity that badly for the show, Brian, that you have to be arrested during the recording. Oh, well, you know, it wouldn't hurt. Certainly, yeah. you know, wouldn't hurt. Uh, now, a, a shout-out to our very good friends who are our partners in this podcast, Murcott's Driving Excellence, 
They're good people, they know what they're doing, and they'll help you know what you're doing when you get behind the wheel of your car, which is a really important skill to have in life. Yes, it is. There's a lot of people driving pretty poorly on the roads after mm. the COVID and they need a brush up. Yep, absolutely. one three hundred triple five five seven six is the number. Mercots.edu.au is their web address. And, of course, uh, you can uh, jump on there, you can uh, book a session, you can uh, uh, grab a gift voucher, you can do all those things, check out uh, the programs that they have because they're in all different, uh, I guess, grades of uh, whether you're a first-time driver, whether you want to go back and learn some uh, some new skills, uh, or hone up the skills you already have. They're the people to talk to. One three hundred triple five five seven six. Now you got your uh, your Nimbin uh, uh, car park pass, and you're you're ready to go on the Hippie Express, Brian. Hey man, it's really cool. Were you ever a hippie? The vote. Would you have qualified? Um, well, I was a bit young to be a hippie. I thought of myself as a bit of a hippie, like I had tie dye jeans, and um, you know, I didn't have the headband, but yeah, I sort of thought of myself as a bit of a hippie. Uh, a um, bit of a surfy dude. So you would have only been a this jacket and thongs. This <laughs> you still do. Um, this well, uh, <laughs> this album goes from sixty six to seventy. So you only would have been in your early. You wouldn't even weren't even a teenager then. Ah uh, no no I was probably uh, what is it sixty six. Yeah. So I was five. Gee, so Lord, but yeah. you know I was, I was pretty well aware of music by then because the girls next door and the people on the other side they were playing Beatles records and stuff all the time. So. You know, I was surrounded by music from a very early age. So, you know, I was sort of, you know, I, was, I was hip to the scene, man. Oh. <laughs> I was hip to the scene, man. He was still wetting his pants, but he was I, hip to the scene. I, I was hip to the scene and I was no, I was no jive turkey. <laughs> I was hip to the scene, man. Oh, oh I didn't even like Al Green. Yes. Well, no mention of Al Green at all as we speak to our, our guest on uh, Life of Brian. Uh, he is Richard Clapton. Hey, Richard. Hey, Richard. How are you? Good. Short but coping. Yeah. How's yourself? Tell me about it, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you, mate? Are you well? Uh, I am. I am. Have yeah. you been okay? Yeah, look, you know, um, I, actually I, I was pretty lazy before it started and then I found <laughs> that I became even more lazy and to the point where if I've got to do two things in a day like pay a bill and make a phone call, I'm a nervous wreck. I've, I've, I've had hardly any exercise for a year. Oh, really? And um, and for some, yeah, somebody with a body like mine, I really need my daily exercise. We kept busy with this album, so that was a godsend. So I still got my mental faculties intact. Oh, that's good. Because well, I've been busy that, every day. That's terrific. There's one out of three on this program with these mental the facilities intact. That's a great start. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, listen, tell us, because Brian and I were just talking and having a look through the run-through of the tracks on, on Music Is Love. So why are you doing a cover version, to, like an album of covers? Because Terry Blamey, who was Kylie Minogue's manager until recently, um, parted ways with Kylie and then started just coming to my gigs and, and we became mates. About a year after I'd known Terry, I was lucky enough to get a gig in San Francisco. I went and did the gig in San Francisco, stayed, stayed in town for about a, a month and I was hanging around Haight-Ashbury. For an old hippie like me, it's like a pilgrimage. Yeah. So when I came back, I was around at Terry's one night in Melbourne. He was asking me about San Francisco and and I told him I was, you know, hanging around Haight Ashbury. And, and anyway, uh, in the early hours of the morning, Terry went, that's what we're going to do, an album of hippie anthems. We spent like oh, a year or more just having a lot of fun. Every Like I'm in Sydney, so each time I'd be down in Melbourne, I'd get together with Terry and we went through, I guess we had a list originally of maybe 50 songs. 
something like that. We had to cull it down, obviously. Yeah. We came up with these. Well, it's a great lineup of songs. Oh, um, yeah. Seemed to sort of covered covered it pretty well, I reckon. Your hippie thing, sorry, I'll, I'll get back to the record in a minute, but your hippie thing started. You lived in a commune when you were first starting, didn't you? And the other hippies used to I go and, Berlin, yeah. And they used to go and work and say, no, you don't work, you write songs. That's more valuable than you working in the the garden or something. Is that right? You've done your research. I remember, yeah. I remember reading about it ages ago thinking, Oh, that would have been good. You got all the hippies again. No, Richard, you stay here and write some songs, and we'll go and plant the carrots or whatever it was. But I thought that was a really, yeah. really great way to learn your craft. You know, somebody else is doing all the work. Isn't no, you just play. So well done on that. So this is a bit of a flashback to those times, I guess. Well, it is because the David Crosby songs, like Music Is Love, mm. it, it, it's pretty obscure that music. But so I was in London four and a half years. Got kicked out of the UK. <laughs> And went back to Berlin because so I'd already, you know, made friends in Berlin. And I had a German band with this amazing guitar player, uh, Ziggy, or Siegfried Druweis. He was a really adept musician, like me. And the Crosby album came out in 1970, which is called If Only I Can Remember My Name. Music is Love is, is um, I mean, there are amazing songs on there. As I said, Ziggy was a lot more adept at music than I was. And so... The attraction for me was every song on the Crosby album is written in different tuning, guitar tuning. Oh. So they're not easy songs to play, but the German guy obviously had it down really well. And then if you fast forward about 40 years, and Danny Spencer, who's been my guitar player in Melbourne, in Australia really, for over 20 years, through me, Danny got really um, interested in this David Crosby album as well, because Danny, uh, Danny plays for Jimmy as well as me, and Danny plays a lot of slides. So because of all the open open key tunings, Danny just got right into it. But when we're doing this album, quite honestly, that you know the two Crosby songs, I almost cut my hair and music is love. I don't know because I didn't play on it. I just <laughs> I just sang the song. But I'd say that they're they're quite tricky and very interesting. But Danny's got it right down because uh, if you hear music is love on the album, um, that's pretty much exactly what Crosby did. Wow. Which is really interesting because you say that because David Crosby's more known as a vocalist and as a harmonising kind of genius as opposed to anyone who's sort of come up with interesting guitar kind of connections. That's more a Stephen Stills type area. Well, I think um, now if we look at the song list again, there's 15 songs. Yep. And as I said, Terry Blamey and I have culled it down to 15. And so we've narrowed our focus. It's all really pretty much comes out of San Francisco and Laurel Canyon. Yeah. And you'll find that I reckon nearly all of those songwriters and a lot of the music on this album would be in those strange tunings because I myself think modern music was really, really took a sharp left turn with the birds. When the birds came out with Mr. Tambourine Band, I think the birds just started this whole revolution. So all of those people, um, I mean, Jackson Brown is, is you know, um, Jackson Brown's not old enough for this album, but even <laughs> ja- Jackson Brown's, they're all using these really interesting tunings because um, they'd all come out of the folk scene. Because, you know, I was a folkie for a while when I couldn't afford a band. And, <laughs> you know, it's true. Folkies are renowned for, you know, open tunings and because they play on their own. There's a song of mine, Walk on Water, which is the last track on the Great Escape album, and that's, that's probably my best-known um, Brian, help me out here. What's the Zag Bad? 
a, you know, a shag bag. That's something for after the gig. No, sorry, what? <laughs> shag bag. Sort of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I guess it's just because they sound so big. The, the songs from that era are, are quite interesting because they're in these strange tunings and, and um, all those writers just managed to come up with great chord progressions. Yeah, the, the melodies were pretty good too around them time. I think um, melodies were better in the 70s and the 60s than perhaps what we get today. When you say open tuning, you're talking about like Keith Richard, you know, plays with an open D or an open E or just sometimes they've got a capo. Yeah, one. correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so especially the slide guitar players. Yeah, right. They, they like playing in, in – open G just means you strum the guitar without using your left hand. And it plays and G. And just a chord of G. Hey, Richard, were you worried when you jump into a song like For What It's Worth, um, which is, you know, just a, a classic song, and Stephen Stills has always sung that so beautifully, um, and it's, you know, the war anthem for all the, the Vietnam films of the late 1960s and stuff. Uh, a real tricky song to sing, I would have thought. Um, yeah, For What It's Worth. Did you get the vinyl album or the CD album with all the Terry Blamey notes on it? No, I haven't seen that. Terry's written the heaps of liner notes. Which was even um, interesting for me because there was stuff that I didn't know. Because I think you just mentioned um, like a student demo on a campus. But what I've read since and what Terry's written is Stephen Stills was actually driving down Sunset Strip, and there'd been a lot of um, a lot of trouble on Sunset Strip because the police had been trying to shut them down, you know, shut the hippies down, and close all those legendary venues, and so the, the hippies were out in the streets on Sunset, Sunset Strip demonstrating. The cops came in and got really violent. And then it ended up, Stephen Stills driving past and they were actually shooting the kids. Wow. The police were shooting the kids. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> hey, fellas, what does that remind you of? <laughs> <laughs> oh, last week or two. <laughs> like January the 6th, 2021. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, the, the police shot, the, what was the, the main campus that they Kent shot State about? State University. But it wasn't just there either. It was at a whole lot of other unis as well. I saw in the Frank Burns Vietnam yeah, uh, Ber- documentary. Berkeley and all them had stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, they were just shooting everybody. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's democracy, I guess. <laughs> so San Francisco, I mean, the, the, the San Francisco was kind of like the the hippie anthems were the Scott McKenzie songs and, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. You, you, you didn't go the bleeding obvious, but you, you pick some, like say you want to be a rock and roll star and eight miles high, great songs from the birds. Yeah. Look, to be honest, we ended up, Terry wanted, wanted it to be, because this is my generation and Terry got more and more interested in what my musical DNA really is. Uh-huh. And it turns out it really is the birds. And, you know, the artists who are on this album, that's sort of um, the music that I was hearing in the most formative part of my life. And that had a lot to do with the decision-making. There's songs on there which are, are, are really overtly socio-political. You know, Southern Man and, and you know, Buffalo Springfield for what it's worth and Woodstock, etc. But then there's other other songs that are, are oh, I don't know, which are, much lighter and a lot sort of, uh, I suppose, happier, you know. And so that's why I wanted to go with Summer in the City because it, it, it's sort of a no-brainer and, and it's just, you know, it's just a song that makes you feel really good. Yeah. And, and, and incredible song, by the way. Oh, I've been saying that when I, when I did the vocal for that, you know, there's no breath in that. It's syncopation and it's just full on. It's relentless. I was, it's all the way through the song. When I was listening to it. You know, I was- unlike... 
Well, I was listening to it, I was thinking, this is probably the fastest I've ever heard Richard Clapton sing. As you say, there's no gap for a breath. It's just like, just start and then go to the finish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, unfortunately, my band's about half my age. So I can get them to do, say, you want to be a rock rock and roll star, 180 BPM, and they can do it. (laughs) (laughs) How long did the album take to record? Well, we were really fortunate in this way because we came up, so Terry and I came up with this idea. The band that I have, well, there's three Jimmy Barnes players who who also play with me, and uh, the drummers have been playing with Baby Animals recently. So we went into a studio in Sydney, which is, I don't know if you've heard of Rancom, but Garth Porter from Sherbet. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, he did what it done Craig McLaughlin's album, no doubt. But <laughs> let's leave that behind. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, thing about Rancom, it's all old gear and it's very authentic. Oh, great. You know, if you want to get that vintage sound. So we got in there. We probably spent over, over a two-week period um, doing all the band tracks. Mm-hmm. Then I was touring my ass off, as was Jimmy. Um, so Jimmy took those three guys, that was him, and, and Baby Adams were working a lot. So we had to have a break from the album for a few months. And the idea always was we had all the band tracks, we're happy with the band tracks, and then we're going to do the guitar overdubs and, and BVs and, and lead vocals and everything um, at a later stage, yep. you know, when everybody was off the road from touring. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hit, um, which has made it really interesting. So... Okay, we've got the band tracks, then COVID hits, and I think Melbourne was as bad as Sydney, where you couldn't really leave your house. Yeah. So yeah. Danny, the guitar player, is from Melbourne. Danny lives in Brighton. As I said, Danny's been playing guitar with me for about 22 years. So Danny started his place doing all the guitars. Then I got him to do backing vocals because um, it was just too hard to go anywhere. Yeah. You know, in Sydney, anyway, you couldn't go into the All the studios were closed. Yeah. Because of, of COVID. So Danny sat down there working re- re- remotely. David Nichols, the engineer, was pretty ill at the time. David was actually in the hospital yeah. while we were doing this, but he was imploring me to let him work on the album because he just didn't want to lie around, you know, thinking about things, thinking yeah. about his health. Yeah. We worked for nearly a year just all doing this remotely. Like we're all, all over Australia on laptops doing it that way. And uh, it's gone really well. Yeah. Jeez. That's amazing. It doesn't. It sounds really cohesive. It doesn't oh, sound yeah. like it's, you know, but he's playing in different states. So well done, uh, David Chipper Nichols, and you and yourself on that one. Maybe the additional engineering by Paula Jones helped out as well. Man, nobody can believe it because you know Chipper. Chipper had the big C, and it wasn't pleasant oh. at all. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that he did this from a hospital bed, but he missed it yeah. from a hospital bed. How's he going now? Is he is he okay or uh, still fighting? Great. It? No, still fighting it, still battles, still rages. It's not good. I, I know. I, I just lost. I, I don't know if you know uh, or saw Natasha Stewart on The Boys, but Natasha was uh, my backup singer for about 25 years. and oh, yeah. We sadly lost her about a year ago. Natasha would have been doing a lot of the BBs, but we lost her. So, But anyway, um, it's Mahalia Barnes, Eliza Jane Barnes, and Daryl Percival, who I'm love the one you're with. So that was God's sense. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, yeah, great. That's cool. She's a great singer. So, yeah. so does this mean you've got a stockpile of 150 songs you've got sitting there waiting for you to, to record that you've been writing while you've been recording other people's songs? Not necessarily. I, to be honest, I haven't been real prolific two or three years now because I, I really was doing heavy touring. Like I was out there all the time. 
which is a bit prohibitive. When I was younger, you know, I used to cart a laptop around on the road and, and try and write. And then, I don't know, as the years have gone on, it's not just me, it's the way we tour nowadays. I mean, you, you know, you fly out of Sydney, land in Melbourne, go to the hotel, go to the sound check, do the gig, and fly out the next morning. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't done much writing on the road. And even at home, I, I get too distracted with a lot of other stuff. So, no, I don't have a stockpile of songs. Danny really wants... I've, I've done a fair bit of uh, co-writing with Danny. And so, no, I still want to keep writing new songs. Yeah. But I'm really liking this, uh, the, the idea of... To see, I've never done cover versions before. I've never... Uh, the, the explanation I'm giving is I've never been a, a plagiarist or anything because I'm too damn lazy. <laughs> well, I looked through it. I, could, I could only find one song that you'd done a cover of, and that was the the version of "I Fought the Law" that you did. Now, that's the only one I could find. Which is, which is Mark Over. Mark Over brought the issue there because he was he was head of A and R at Warner and the record producer when he was doing East and The Great Escape. And, and I don't know. I think because Mark was the A and R man, he was he was panicking that we wouldn't have a single, and I, I think that's why he wanted to do that. Yeah. History's proved itself. I think I'm an island got to the top five, and I and I thought the law never really did much. Yeah. Anyway. So, is there a volume two of music as love scene? You said there were fifty songs. There's another thirty five yet we haven't seen. Would you do a volume two of this if it goes well? Uh, people are always starting to mention that. Now, if I did a volume two, see, during that couple of years where we were curating the album, you know, I'd come up with like Street Fighting Man, mm-hmm. and then after a while, Terry would go, well. How far are we going to spread this? Are we going to get into Rolling Stones and Free? Uh, you know, and then we thought, no, let's save that for a rainy day. So we deliberately told all the all the British and European songs out. And I, I think the only only thing is the Orn Brothers track yeah. that, that doesn't fit into the the, um, the California. Well, it's pretty much Northern California. Yep. You know, like Laurel Canyon and and Kate Ashbury. And all all those songs come from there, including um, "Love and Spoonful." By the way, I think oh. I've said that in a recent. I said it somewhere. That yeah, John Sebastian. Yep. Well, I always thought they were just from New York, but this, the true story is they all got busted for pot, and um, <laughs> they ran away, and moved to Laurel Canyon. <laughs> so even they fit into Laurel Canyon. Well, didn't we all? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear. You, I'd love to hear you singing free songs. I think you'd sing the free songs really well. Well, that that's on the cards. That Good. may well happen. Good next time around. Yeah, beautiful. Because obviously, see, it's ironic because I don't know what that, what the the record company sent you, but the, the ironic thing about this is I was in London. I had I'd never been to the states in you know the late sixties. But I was in London and I was listening to After the Gold Rush and Bob Dylan and James Taylor, etc. So I was listening to all these American artists, but living in London, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's an odd mix, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, listen, it's been great to catch up, Richard. Thanks so much for your time, mate. We appreciate it. And loving this, uh, loving this album. Looking forward to playing the hell out of this one. I want to get some incense and Thank you. some marijuana and just chill out listening <laughs> yeah. to it. Oh, well, have Woodstock in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Mull up, brothers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, hey. And yeah. don't eat the brown acid. No, of course not. <laughs> don't eat the brown acid. <laughs> uh, I, I, I gave you that. Instead of doing a station ID, 
that can be your Richard Clapton ID. Okay. It's don't eat the brown acid. <laughs> Richard, Richard Clapton says don't eat the brown acid. <laughs> hey, thanks, Richard. Thanks, Appreciate Richard. it, mate. Great. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Great album. Okay. Bye, mate. Thanks for talking to us. Bye. See you. Summer in the city, back of my neck, getting dirty and witty. Been down, it's a little pity. Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking happy, walking on the sidewalk, out of the matchstick. But a night is a different world. Go out and find a girl. Come on, come on, dance all night. Despite the heat, it'll be alright. And babe, don't you know it's a pity the days don't seem like the nights in the summer. In the city, in the summer, in the city Cool town, summer in the city Dressed so fine and looking so pretty Cool town, looking for a kitty Gonna look in every corner of the city Feel like I'm wheezing like a bus stop Running upstairs, gonna beat you on the rooftop But a night is a different world Go out and find a girl Come on, come on and dance all night Despite the heat, it'll be alright in vain Don't you know it's a pity the day can't be like the nights in the summer, in the city, in the summer, in the city. There's uh, Richard uh, from this album that is uh, is out and about now. It's it's very good. It's called uh, Music Is Love, sixty six to nineteen seventy. We're going to play the uh, Buffalo Springfield cover that he's done a little later on, um, and the cover with the bus on it, the hippie bus and the flowers yeah. and the heart. It's it's bloody brilliant. And uh, the liner notes from Terry Blamey, who Richard mentioned, uh, there uh, well worth having a read of as well. Talk about uh, the the story behind some of the songs. Do you know what I concluded from that interview and listening to that song? Mm-hmm. That Richard Clapton is hip to the scene, man. <laughs> he's hip to the scene. Oh, is he? Really? He ain't no jive turkey. <laughs> well, one man that he mentioned there at the end when he talked about the uh, the recording of the album uh, with I'm an Island and I Fought the Law, which was the only other cover version he's ever done, yeah. was Mark Opitz. 
Yes. As you could tell there, Richard wasn't terribly pressed about recording a version of I Fought the Law and, you know, was vindicated by the fact that I'm an Island was a bigger hit single than I Fought the Law was. But mm. Mark Opitz has not had a lot of uh, misses in his career, it, it, it would be fair to say. I'd say he's very hip to the scene. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, from the early days uh, at Alberts, we're going to trace all that all the way through to uh, to what he's doing today uh, up on uh, where he lives on the Gold Coast these days. So in the next uh, couple of episodes of uh, Life of Brian, you're going to meet and find out about uh, one of the most fascinating and uh, best credentialed men in the Australian rock industry. I, I imagine uh, if, you, if you sort of lined them up all against the wall. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, he's no jive turkey and he's certainly hip to the scene. What's a jive turkey? <laughs> I don't know. It's just something <laughs> that I think it's in flying high and then the two black dudes are talking and you go, yeah, no jive turkey. <laughs> I don't even know what it means, but I like the sound of it. I'll have jive. It. Oh, do you want fries with that jive turkey or not? Yeah, no, I think it means it's sort of like somebody's talking crap. I think it means okay. jive turkey. So the, our version of that would be gobbledygook or gobbledygook. Um, bullshit artist. Yeah, yeah, bullshit okay. artist. Yeah, okay. yeah jar turkey. Okay. Now you've, yeah. now you've got it in western suburbs of Melbourne English for me that I can understand. All right. <laughs> well, you know, this show should come in subtitles. Yeah, pretty much. All right, let's get to uh, Mark Opitz, our, our guest, and uh, this is part one of our chat with Mark. Mark, thanks for joining us on The Life of Brian. Absolute pleasure to be here, boys. Absolute uh, pleasure. Fantastic. Now, it's a wonderful career, Mark. But kind of one of the big influences, nineteen sixty four when the Beatles came out. Is that right? Yeah, uh, exactly right. I could not believe the Beatles were in the same country that I was in for a start. You know, I mean, I was the right age to be part of Beatlemania. Unless you were there for Beatlemania, you can't really describe it to anyone. It's like you could cut the air with a knife. And so when when they turned up in Australia, it was like you're kidding me. They're in. And then they turned up in Brisbane and my brother, older brother, went out to the airport to see him arrive. And then a, a couple of days later, uh, I was practising my football uh, in a rugby league as opposed to AFL. And then my brother comes belting around on my push bike. He says, you've got to come home. And I said, why? He said, we're going to see the Beatles. I said, and I was just dumbstruck. We're going to wow. see the Beatles. You know, I'm, I'm like 11 years old or something like that. And, uh, and I just walked home in a daze and... and, and, and you know, my brother and I lived with our mum in a, in a small flat, but somehow she, she'd found a way through a friend of hers to access some Beatle tickets for one pound each as opposed wow. to 32 shillings and sixpence. And so uh, me, my brother, uh, one of my best mates and his elder brother went along to the 6.30 show on Tuesday night in Brisbane to see uh, to see the Beatles. It was, you know, it was incredible, just incredible. I mean, I, I can still remember the whole show, you know, the Phantoms, Opened, who later became MPD Limited. And, oh, you know, then, wow. then Johnny Chester came on. Uh, uh, then, um, what's his name uh, in the Sharks? Johnny Devlin came on after that. And then there was a, a comedian they brought out to introduce the Beatles and stuff. But he introduced a band called Sounds Incorporated, big show. And then, uh, and then he came out and introduced the Beatles. He played, you know, a really long half hour set, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> of which I've still got the set list. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, you know, but I was, you know, into music. For that, you know, I was growing up on a diet of stuff that my brother was listening to. I mean, he was into the Stones and stuff. But even before that, we were in a children's home for a short while, for a few years. And, and my bed was up near the radiogram in the dormitory of 54 kids. 
on Sunday night, they let us listen to the hit parade. So I was listening to like Gene McDaniels, you know, Connie Francis, you know, Helen Shapiro, all those up pre-Beatle artists. And later on, you know, that then when, I, when we managed to get out of there when I was about 10, I used to go to sleep with the transistor radio under under my pillow, you know, like we all did that age. But that but radio for me was a lifeline to my dreams. So the Beatles, you know, in answer to your first question, had a very big effect on me. The show had a, a monstrous effect on me, of course. You know, what did they sound like? Could you hear them? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Because I knew, I, and the reason I could hear them, so I knew every word and uh, of every song. You know, and the only new song they played was. From a hard day's night was Can't Buy Me Love, I think it was. But it was just like, listen, to me, it was just like listening to the, you know, remember, radio's smaller and shit in those days. Yeah. Yes. But the sound coming out of the radio wasn't great. Yeah. And so it was just like listening to, you know, better than the radio with screaming, you know, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> and screaming. That was part of it. That was, I mean, that's, listening to the Beatles was sensational enough. You know, I couldn't wait to get home if there was a new Beatles release coming out to hear it. But, when you add screaming to it, what you're doing then is you're adding emotional attachment. So your adrenaline goes up even higher because there's all this other, there's so much love in the room, so to speak, uh, you know, added to the music, added to it, all that, one on one, eight, three. So it's a huge event. It, it was massive. I remember walking out and waiting, seeing all these people waiting to get in in anticipation. And as I was walking out, I stepped over a gutter and there was a, a someone had left a souvenir, like a, a little stick with a Beatles flag on it. So I picked that up, and I also managed to get a, a program. So for years, I kept my Beatles ticket in my wallet. So, I mean, I've got memories of it, but the most important memories is that I've got a career. After the Beatles arrived, it was like, right, I'm getting into music. That's going to be it. Sort of. You know, I, I wasn't about thinking of getting into music. I, I was in music, you know. Right. I mean, I went to every show. I mean, I can rattle off a, you know, so many shows that, that I saw at Brisbane Festival Hall, you know, from that period on. I mean, the Yardbirds, for God's sake, you know, I, I, I was a, a Jeff Beck fan, you know, and yep. I, I knew Eric, and Eric Clapton fan big time, but a, a Jeff Beck, you know, so I got tickets to, to I saw The Who, by the way, as well, in 67, oh. whatever it was. The Yardbirds was the one that blew me away. They all blew me away. So there I am sitting there and the Yardbirds come on, but... Jeff Beck didn't come on stage. This other guitar player came. What? Yeah, this long, a three-quarter coat on. He's playing a white Telecaster with silver round dots on it, similar to the Channel Nine logo. And and this guy started playing, and 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 Keith Ralph the singer said, "Oh look, uh, this uh, this is our new guitar player. You know, uh, his name's Jimmy Page." Yes. Oh. And uh, <laughs> and so oh, and he and he took my head off. <laughs> Literally, and, and and obviously years later, I saw Zeppelin in Sydney. But um, um, it, it, music was in my blood, and by the time I was sixteen, to answer your question, it was Kevin who asked the question. But second last year of high school, I'd made up my mind. I either wanted to be the best movie director in Australia or the best record producer. Right. So you ended up getting a job at Albert. Is that what happens next? I, I, no, I ended up getting a job at ABC TV on my quest to be the best movie director. That's right. Oh, okay. you're, you're a cameraman, weren't you? First off, when I first joined, you know, like I was, my mother knew an actor, and an actor knew someone at the ABC who was in a good position, and uh, and that, so I had an interview with him, and then that person thought, yeah, this kid's okay, I'll introduce him to the head of studios. You know, you know, I remember going in the first day and be taken into 
Studio 21 control room for it to be shown around, and I just couldn't believe it. I thought, shit, you know, there's people everywhere, banks of screens everywhere. The sound guy was in his own department, the camera operator, CCU person controlled the camera operator, vision switches. And I thought, I thought I've bitten off way more than I can shoot here. You know, and, you know, this, whatever this production they're doing, this must be full on. And anyway, so then they took me out of there, out through the viewing room, down the stairs onto the studio floor, and they were doing Mr. Squiggle. You know, oh, and, wow. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm going, shit, you know, it's just technical on that. What's it going to be like on anything else? And so I stayed there for a few years, and, and, um, and so I got a gig and uh, as assistant cine cameraman on, um, the Seven Little Australians, and so I went into that, which was fantastic. Enjoyed my time there for about, I don't know, half of the show. Then I had to go back to TV studios. And then I had a meeting with the, with the, the boss of the actual TV crews, and he said, we weren't very appreciative of you going away to film department because, you know, if we, oh. A, we don't like the film, film department, and B, you know, it, it, you didn't leave a shorthanded with your cubby, but, it, you know, it's doesn't show loyalty. So what we're going to do is change your job. You're not going to be a TV cameraman. You will get. You they were going to banish me to sound to audio, and worse than that, they were going to banish me to the worst part of audio, which was music audio. Oh. And I said, mm. I said, oh, okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> you know? And then I got to, then I got to work with some really cool people and and, and work on all the music shows and. Uh, just like the opening of the opera house, I, I was seconded to the opera house, and after that, you know, and I just thought, shit, ABC, I can't really do this anymore, and so so I left and, and sort of joined a band for a little while, and I and I realised this is going nowhere, just smoking drugs, it was fine, but you know, it's going nowhere, you know. See, and, Brian, you know, I told you. Ah, yeah, all right. Don't worry, I still do. I can, but, you know, my partner doesn't like me doing it anymore. Uh, anyway, so what I did, I remember the day very clearly. I was living up on the Pitwater in Sydney, if you know the Pitwater, you know, that harbour north of Sydney, and I was sitting on a cliff with a friend of mine, Malcolm Lamb, about our feet dangling over this 100-foot cliff, and thinking, I'm, you know what I'm going to do, Malcolm? I'm going to I'm going to pursue my dream to be a record producer now. So I made up a list of all the top studios in Sydney, and at that time there were a few. And uh, so I decided to start at the top, and, uh, and which was EMI Recording Studios. Went in there, and I rang him up. I was smart enough to say, I'm not looking for a job, I'm looking for advice, you know, when I rang up. So that meant I could get in and see the boss of the studio. And so we were talking and about that, and he said, what do you want? And he was smart enough to figure out, to say, oh, look, we haven't got some jobs, by the way. And, and then he started talking to me and stuff like that. And he said, oh, who trained you at the ABC? And I said, oh, my main mentor was a guy called Noel Cantrell, who was a legend in music audio and drama audio at ABC TV. He'd worked on the Beatles when he was in England. Uh, but uh, this guy's a total legend, total nice guy. And as soon as I said these two words, Noel Cantrell, Bill Ramsey, the head of studio, said, Noel Cantrell, you've got a job here right now. My first job was to go in. I had this little room where I had an eight-track tape recorder, a four-track tape recorder, and a two-track tape uh, tape recorder, and my job was to get the two-track masters and transfer them to four-track so they could go into a cassette master, or eight-track so they could go into a cartridge master. And then I graduated into actual cut, the, the lathe part. But the beauty of all this was that that 
that, that with the tapes uh, that I was master, yeah, you know, the two track uh, masters that I was got were brought up to me by the label managers, and and through meeting those guys, yeah, I met one guy who was really clever, Roger Langford, and he said, "You shouldn't be working here, mate. You should be working in the A and R department with us." Months later, working on a classical record for the ABC. And the door opens, and it's the head of the, you know, the employment boss of the fifth floor. He says, "Oh, Mark, we we we've hired a guy to to run Capital Records in Australia, and to run local artist label, but he hasn't turned up." Roger says, "You're really good. Would you like the job?" And <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? Anyway, so so there I was ending up running um, Capital Records in Australia and in charge of local artists, not A and R, the hiring of the artists, but the release and the marketing campaigns. Capital sent me out the new Dr. Hook, the, the Dr. Hook album. Remember Dr. Hook? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they said, we've got this song. We want to release it the first single around the world called Sylvia's Mother Sex. And I said, yeah, it's a good song. But I reckon I don't want to go with that one. I've got another one that I, I think we should go with first, and I'll go with that second. And they said, look, you know, we can't really do that. And I said, yeah, I really like Only 16, the Sam Cooke song. Yeah, I reckon you should yeah. go with that first. And they said, well, be it on your own head. We'll let you do it, but be it on your own head. In other words, they'd give me a warning. If it didn't work, I was in trouble. Luckily, only 16, that's through the roof. When Wings came to Australia, and remember, I was managing Capital Records, so my act. But Stephen, the boss, said, Mark, I'll take care of this. Yeah, Thanks very yeah, much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I know, that feels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. So I was shafted, but that's all right. And then after, a, 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 you know, another year of that, I was in Shrimpton's office for Friday afternoon drinks like this. And he said, mate, you know, and he said, and I was sitting in his managing director chair having a beer, you know, and he said, you like that chair? You can have that chair one day if you want. I said, well, I don't really want it. You know, I don't really like working. He said, oh, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a record producer. And so he arranged for me to become Richard Lush's assistant, who was a house producer at EMI. And from that point, I graduated on to, you know, doing a couple of very minor productions. I'd come in on the weekends and just do anything, you know, get friends in to play just because just to, I was so in love with what I was doing. And then just one band came in. And uh, I did this over a weekend with him, you know, because, you know, I just did everything, you know, just produced this track, got it up. It was sounding really good. Now, unbeknownst to me, they took the demo because they weren't very knowledgeable on how copyright law and recording law work. They took the demo to Sony and Sony loved it and said, oh, we'll release this. And, but they didn't tell Sony how they made it. So, oh, yeah, sure, okay, you release it. We've got, hey, we've got a deal. We won't tell Mark. We'll just surprise him. And they turned up to the studio with a pressed single with on Sony produced by Mark Opus. Of course, the studio went bananas. Yep. Because, A, Sony didn't own the rights to that recording. EMI still owned it. Yeah. It, was, you know, it was totally illegal. And so a new studio manager had been put in place by that time and he was about to spend $2 million on re-equipping, you know, a lot, which is a lot of money in 1978, still is, or 77, on re-equipping EMI Studios at Castle So he said, well, you're sacked. You, you're obviously doing, making money where you shouldn't be, you know, you know, without telling us. And I said, no, I'm not. This is all a mistake. He said, no, you know, no, you're sacked. And I, I was shattered, you know, and I thought my life was over in terms of what I wanted to do. But luckily enough, um, you know, after, you know, feeling really sorry for myself and I still had my 62 Les Paul and I had my 1935 Gibson Kalamazoo 
you know, so I, I still had those sort of things. I had bits and pieces and I had a bit of money saved up so I could live. And then I, I'm, John Paul Young's manager was a really good friend of mine, a guy called Wayne DeGrucci. Yeah, the way. And, well, yeah, he was managing John. And, of course, John was on Albert's with Andrew and Young. And I'd worked briefly with Vander and Young. Anyway, Wayne went to, 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 to Harry and George and said, mate, there's this guy, you might know him, he's worthwhile having around, you know. And so I got this call from George Young. He said, hey, man, hey, Mark, you know, he, you're not working for your mate anymore. I'm sorry, I'm doing a bad Scottish accent. Yeah, that's okay. And then, and then they said, yeah, the situation, he never said situation, he said situation. The yeah, situation is, uh, you know, we're looking for someone to help us out down here. So you, you come in for an interview. So I went in for an interview, went for a few hours. And they said, and then George said to him, look, what we'd like you to consider and don't, and give this, think about this for two days, that we'd like you to work for us as our assistant, apprentice, you know, the guy that just helps, you know, Harry and I will do the producing, but you can come in and do the engineering, learn from us and the three of us, you know, the idea is to work as a unit. But don't answer me now. Think about it for two days. Well, fuck me. If you didn't think I didn't sit by that telephone for 48 hours. Yeah, here with a stop, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and say, so I'm in. You know, it, that's exactly what happened. And so, you know, and so the very first day, you know, I turned up at Albert's and I couldn't believe it. You know, I've gone back to the penthouse again, basically. First day, it rocked up at, you know, 9 or 10 o'clock or whatever it was in those days. Gone into the into the production office where FIFA, FIFA Riccobono and you know, her office was where George and Harry sort of worked out. Didn't meet Ted straight away, Ted Albert, who's one of my absolute heroes. But um, and George said, yeah, Mark, yeah, we've got a, we've got a band we recorded last week. Uh, I want you to have a go at mixing it. And uh, it's, uh, the, I've already put the tape on the machine down there and, uh, and marked up the console, but you go down there and uh, Harry and I will come down later on and see how you're doing. And I'm going, wow, shit, you know, I've really bitten off Mr. Squiggle. No, this is worse. I've been paying more than my job here. And I've gone down there, and the first song that I mixed on the very first day for um, for Albert was Bad Boy for Love by Rose Tattoo. <laughs> wow. That's, that's my first day. <laughs> and so you can imagine, it just it, it, it added on from there. And I was, you know, and I, I remember I was working there for months. Came up to Christmas. George caught me in in, in the you know it's so in, in, it was just me, George, and Harry working on stuff. And, you know, I did a little bit of Let There Be Rock, you know, um, uh, engineering wise, and you know, so I was, I was you know, learning shit all the time. But coming up to Christmas, George caught me in the hallway, you know, and I said, "Oh, Mike, you know, we're cutting, we shut down for Christmas. You're going away anywhere?" And I said, "No, um, I'm not, George. I'm just going to be staying at home." And he said to me, "What? Don't we pay you enough?" And I said, "Well." You don't pay me anything. <laughs> and George looked at me and said, what? I said, well, yeah, after I didn't get paid the first week, I thought the pay must be the work experience I'm having working with you guys. And it had to get by. And I said, well, I, I sold my guitars. I mean, they're only wooden wire. Uh, 62 Les Paul is more than wooden wire. By oh, way. correct. <laughs> and it's the only SG shape Les Paul ever made. So, so I sold that. I sold my Gibson Kalamazoo. Yeah, and so and then Ted Albert came down to see me and said, Mark, I believe we haven't been paying. And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, here's $100 for the last four months. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, and we're going to give you $100 a week. Woohoo! 
But, Mark, I want you to remember the $100 a week we're going to give you is an advance against royalties that you will earn for the company. Yeah. Oh. So, in, so eight, you know, two months later, you know, Ted's come to see me again and said, Mark, um, he's got his big red book out. It appears you owe us $800. Where are you going to do that? <laughs> oh. Fortunately for me, George Young had pulled me aside pretty much after the first episode with Ted with $100. And, and George had called me aside and said, look, we've, we've, we've got this band, The Angels. We've tried. Did an album with them. Had a turntable hit with them. Oh, we're going to see your face again. Had it worked. We're going to drop them, or you can take them on. And uh, and I said, oh shit! You know, oh, of course, George, I'll take them on. You know, again, shitting my pants. You know, if George and Harry can't make a hit out of the you know country rock band as they were at the time, they can't make a hit. And these are the hottest producers in Australia and in world class. How am I going to go, Mister Junior? You know, I've only done a couple of minor things before. So I went round to my old mate Wayne DeGrucci's house, who I mentioned before. On a Friday night, as we used to gather at his place, myself and a couple of my ex EMI buddies. But, uh, and I'm, I'm sitting there in a room by myself, and Wayne comes in with a big fat joint and says, Mark, what's the problem? I said, Oh, I just thank you. know, obviously, I thanked him about, you know, re thanked him for getting me the gig and all that. Stuff. And he said, Look, well, whatever you're thinking about, have a listen. This is a new record I got. And it was a band called Graham Parker and the Rumor. Do you remember that? Great band. Great band. They don't ask the questions, protection. That's it. Fantastic band. Love it. And it was their, it was their very first album, and he had a pre-release of it. And uh, and so there I was, stoned off my head, listening on headphones to those tracks, you know, the first album. And I'm I'm thinking, wow, you know, you know, because punk music was the thing at that point. Yeah. And all of a sudden, punk, I said, gee, punk's changed. You know, obviously it was turning into the start of new wave. And I thought that punk uh, music has become sophisticated. Then I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to do with the ages. I'm going to find sophisticated punk music. I didn't know what it was. I knew it wasn't Graham Parker and the Rumour. I knew it had to be based on more rock and punk than that, but it had to go that way, and I was sort of slightly predicting the future in my own head. So uh, lucky enough at Alberts, we had our own studio, so every spare moment I could get the angels in, now that they were my band, I'd get them in there, and, and I, but I still hadn't heard the sound. And one day, John Brewster came to me and said, oh, I came up with this riff in Adelaide while I was driving around in my car and, and I've sort of turned into arrangements. So, and we were in Studio 2 at this time at Alberts, which was very unusual. And without Doc Neeson, just Buzz Bidstrip, Chris Bailey and the two Brewster brothers. So they went out and played this tune based on an eight-note field. And I went, fuck me, that's it. That's sophisticated That's sophisticated punk. And so I'm jumping up and down in the control room, which I very rarely do. And then I've got everyone back in and said, that's it. That's the sound we're looking for. That's the sound. We've got to transpose every other one of our songs that we've got to that feel. You know, as many, not all of them are going to be able to do that, but, and write new ones with that kind of feel. And from that, you know, like we transposed a few, you know, Take a Long Time was written, you know, Marseille was written. Oh, wow. But we knew now we had a direction. And now, then we had a direction that was it's easy to record the record. That is part one of our chat with Mark Opitz. And believe me, there is plenty more coming about almost every artist you could ever think of that has uh, graced a studio in this country. Yep. He's had something to do with them somewhere. 
He sure has, Kev, and, um, you know, he's very hip to the scene and that's great and he's certainly no Jive Turkey but um, a very interesting man. <laughs> great producer. Right. No, excellent producer and, uh, you know, some of Australia's finest music uh, you'll hear talked about in uh, part two, which will be coming up next week and also uh, on the next episode uh, of yeah. uh, Life of Brian, uh, thanks to yes. uh, Murcott's Driving Excellence, Andrew Farris. From NXS. Fantastic. Yes. Wow. With a solo we got album, we've got all done. the big names, Kev. All the big names. We most certainly do. He's finally got a solo album out. Got a single that uh, you might have heard around the place now called "Run, Baby, Run." We're going to talk to him about that, about the NXS days, and about uh, what he's up to these days in the next episode of Life Is Brian. So we're, we're looking forward to that. He's got a great album coming out, and um, gee whiz, he's got some good writing credentials, hasn't he? He's oh, wow. Massive hits. So Talk about some of the him. biggest hits uh, internationally and worldwide. Some of, you see some of the footage of some of the concerts that, that In Excess did overseas. My God, oh, they were, they they were massive. Yes. Absolutely they were. Absolutely. Oh. Do you reckon we should have stung him for a couple of bucks? He'd have a, he'd have a few. You think he'd be cashed up? I reckon we could have said, you know, hey, Andy, how about 20 <laughs> bucks for me and Kev? Hey, hey, Andy. <laughs> hey, Andy, how about 20 bucks for me and Kev? <laughs> well, we, we could have tried on. We're now begging. <laughs> well, we're not even, know, we're not even busking. Think, if we'd hit Alice Cooper up for 20 bucks, Johnny Rotten up for 20 bucks, Peter Hitchener up for 20 bucks, Dick Smith up for 20, we'd have nearly 100 bucks. Yeah, we would. All the, we'd uh, be able to retire. All the millionaire guests we've had on the program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's a, a revenue Colin source. Oh, he could have spent yeah, 20 bucks. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Shaking Stevens, he's got the 19 CD box set out. He could have spent 20 bucks. Exactly. <sighs> we'll just have to, throw the, have to throw the hat out next time, Brian. Oh, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But well, you've geez. got a little hat. You wear a little hat. I see you with the hat on <laughs> social media. Got a little hat, yeah. Got a little, it out. Got a, got a little cup that I collect money into. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you, just, you just get the organ grinder and I'll yeah. jump around with the Th- cup. Thank you very much. Thank All you. Right. I, I knew I was going to finish up being the organ grinder here. There's never anything oh, sure. Organ grinder, get it? Uh, Murcott's, Murcott's Driving Excellence. Uh, they're our great partners in this podcast. one 555 au. Sam, if you want to brush up your skills behind the wheel because uh, it certainly is very much needed and something you'll appreciate. So one 555 Thank you, Brian. Andrew Farris and uh, part two of Mark Opitz will be in our next uh, edition of uh, this podcast. Don't forget you can check out uh, all the uh, previous episodes with the likes of the people Brian just talked about, including, you know, Dennis Cometti, Richard Wilkins, Dawn Fraser, Steve Waugh. Uh, they've all been on this uh, on this podcast. So uh, check out some previous episodes uh, to fill in time until we talk to you again. Same bat time, same bat channel. Tune in for another thrilling episode. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me that I got to beware I think it's stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Resistance from behind I think it's-
capital creep It starts when you're always afraid You step 